0: Thank you uh, for coming, and uh, thanks again, Praise Team, for leading us in in praise. Um, It is, uh, yeah, it's definitely uh, cooled up a bit. Uh, I know we have some some guests from different places, from Toronto and and Chicago and town, and Um, I was apologizing to some of them for um, the unseasonably and uncharacteristically cold weather here in Florida, but um, probably as the weather changes and it gets a little bit colder, you've been maybe getting, uh, seeing uh, newspaper ads or things for flu shots, or um, I don't know if you've got health insurance or things like that, they're telling you to get shots, and It's a time of year when a lot of people get come down with things, whether it be the flu or cold or things like that. And so uh, I thought it would be very helpful. I want to be as helpful as I can here as as I um, lead us to places where we're trying to go to to give you some uh, very practical and handy advice on how to deal with certain uh, common illnesses that we may come across in life. So I found this. This is kind of like some all-natural remedies and and things. Um, I heard that if you've got a headache... Uh, better than taking any kind of medicine, if you drink two glasses of Gatorade, it knocks it out almost immediately. Did you know that? So, um, you're prone to getting headaches, you can try this. It might, I don't think it will save you that much money because Gatorade probably costs as much as Advil or Tylenol. But try it one day. If you've got extra Gatorade lying around the house, you can, you can drink it. Um, those of you who have acne, a lot of acne, Okay, here's a good hint. Okay, so a bunch of y'all lift your heads up. Okay, for those of you who have acne, or you will, uh, if you put a drop of honey on wherever you've got a pimple and then you cover it with a Band-Aid, it's supposed to be, supposedly overnight it's supposed to disappear. Uh-huh. Word to the wise. So take a note of that. You, you, uh, feel free to, to write on your uh, paper. No one's gonna, you, You're writing this for your friends, ultimately. So uh, for those of you whose friends have toenail fungus, okay, I know some of y'all friends have toenail fungus, um, feel free to write this down for their sake. If you... Dip your toes in Listerine; it should knock that fungus right out. It's pretty helpful. There's multiple uses for Listerine. Um, in addition to that, don't use the same. Well, if you use the last bit of your Listerine on your feet instead of your mouth, and you've got bad breath. Apparently, if you chew on parsley leaves because they are a natural source of chlorophyll, which is nature's own deodorizer, you can knock out bad breath. Okay, so um, let's try this. Turn to the person next to you and just breathe on them, and then that- <laughs> Oh, my goodness. (sighs) Wow. Okay, good. Uh, Today, okay, bringing it back here. Okay, today, uh, we're going to look into God's word, and Paul is kind of uh, wrapping up, getting to uh, the concluding parts of the letter to the Philippians, and he gives some common, uh, just advice, advice for common illnesses, ailments, things that Uh, we as Christians, we as people struggle with. And he shares a biblical prescription for them. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses um, Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. Yeah, Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And uh, we're going to see God's word prescription for some common things we struggle with in this world. Philippians chapter four, verse two. This is God's word. I plead with Eodia and I plead with Sintiki to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word. Three things, three things that we struggle with, and I think at least one of these things are things that you and I uh, will say that this is something that we either are or have or will struggle with. The first thing is, what do we do in the midst of conflict? Common, uh, well, not so common, but biblical advice for conflict. What do we do in in this situation? Uh, You know, it's been getting a little bit chilly uh, for us as humans, but also for animals. The animal life has gotten a little bit chilly as well. And so um, there are these porcupines. I don't know if they were here in in Florida or not. Um, I'm not exactly sure where they were, but it started getting cold. And porcupines, not not known to be hairy, furry creatures, um, were getting cold at night. And they didn't have jackets and whatnot, heaters. So they decided the only way we can keep warm is if we huddle together. And so this one porcupine said to another porcupine, we need to create body heat. We need to create warmth together in order for us to survive in this life. And so they got together, and, and the closer they got, the problem is the closer they got, the more they kept poking each other. And so one porcupine said, dude, why are you cramping my style? And the other guy's like, you stepped on over the line, and this is it. And, and so they decided, well, as much as we need each other, we, we, need to, we need to kind of pull apart. And so they pulled apart from each other. And so uh, in the midst of the freezing cold weather, they started realizing that, you know what, I can't, I can't do this, I can't stay warm by myself. And so he called his buddy and said, hey, okay, 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 let's come back together and let's try again. They got back together and, and same thing happened. They started poking each other. And they started hurting each other. And they started annoying each other. And the point that they came to realize is as, as much as we need each other, as much as they were needing each other, they are also needling each other. And that's the case with us as well, isn't it? All throughout the book of Philippians, Paul has been saying, we need each other. You've got to do this together. You've got to do this together. And almost every one of the commands that Paul writes here is not saying you as an individual need to consider others better than yourself. You as an individual need to rejoice in a little. But he's saying that as a community, all of you need to do this together. You can't rejoice apart from the other people of God. And so he's saying in the midst of this community, you desperately need one another in order to make it through this life. But let the truth be told, and all of us will say that some of our deepest pain, has not our deepest pain often been caused by people and even people, within, even people within the church? Sad to say, but that's the case here. He says in verse 2, I plead with Iodia and I plead with Sintiki, two people, to agree with each other in the Lord. And then he says, I, I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women Who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here's what he's saying. Here's what Paul is saying. These two women. Okay, these two women contended with me for the sake of the gospel. The word that he's using was, was clear to the Philippian church. These were gladiators, right, fighting for a common cause. He's saying these two women were like gladiators, willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And yet these two women whose names are written in the book of life, these two women who are devoted to not only Christ, but to the cause of Christ and the gospel spread, willing to lay down their lives, were living in disagreement with each other. He says, if it happens to them, then surely it can happen to us, and maybe it is happening to you today. Is there people in your life that you've got conflict with? Maybe people who live in your own home with you. Maybe people that you consider to be fellow brothers or sisters in the Lord. Is there conflict that you're dealing with? Paul says it's very easy for this to happen, and then he says, let me tell you a couple things that you can do here. First of all, he says, we need to, basically, we need to own up to what's our part of the mistake, he says in verse 2, I plead with the Odia and I plead with Sintiki. And the way that he says it, he doesn't say, I plead with the Odia and Sintiki, you need to get, your on, uh, get with the program also. But each of them, he says, I urge each of you as individuals to take your part and to take ownership over whatever your part of the mistake is, whatever the, whatever the conflict is. That you need to own up to what is your part in it and do what was said in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Because at the end of the day, isn't that what most of the conflict in our relationships deals with? Isn't that what it all boils down to, the fact that one of us is unwilling to see the other person as better than ourselves? Again, it doesn't mean that they really are better than ourselves, but it means that we consider them as better, and we submit to their desires and their needs, and we are willing to submit ourselves underneath the needs that they might have. And so he says we need to do this not only for their sake, but he says to do this in the Lord. I, agree, I, I plead with you to agree with each other in the Lord. This, this phrase, in the Lord, is of utmost importance throughout the Bible, but especially in Philippians. When Paul uses these three words, in the Lord, he's usually using it in the context of calling people to do something extraordinarily unusual. In the face of persecution, I find joy, he says, in the Lord. I'm making plans to go see you, but I'm holding lightly to these plans because I plan in the lord. Here he's saying there's a disagreement that could potentially fracture the church and if you are not believers, if you are not believers, the weight of this conflict would crush you, but he's pleading with them in the lord to agree with one another. And so he's calling on each of them to do this. And this conflict was so huge that in this letter that Paul knew was going to be read to the entire congregation, he calls out these individual ladies. Because he's saying the purity and the unity of the church is that important. It's that important that you've got to deal with these issues here. So he says if there's conflict in our relationships with people, especially amongst the people of God, especially with a brother or sister in the church, he's saying the impetus is on you. No matter whether it's, it's 10% of the problem is you, 50% of the problem is you, instead of pointing fingers at them and saying what's their deal, it's to come back and say what's, how am I at fault? What have I done in order to fracture this relationship? And what can I do? Whether they reciprocate this or not, whether they own up to their part or not, it's on me to do what I need to do as a follower of Christ. This is the first thing that he says in, in terms of finding help for conflict. But the second thing that he does is he calls, he calls a third party and he calls a mediator and he calls him a loyal yoke fellow. He says, help these women. So again, Paul is modeling for them what he's calling them to do. A yoke fellow, we don't use this term. Hey, what's up, yoke fellow? We don't use this term a lot these days. It basically means somebody who brings two people together. I don't know why it's called a yoke fellow, but um, it is. It is. That's what it is. So that's a yoke fellow, brings two people together, and he's calling them to be objective in doing it. See, Paul is is. Whether he knows the situation or not, whether he knows who's more at fault or not, he gives uh, just an objective, objective perspective on it, and he pleads with each of them, and he calls uh, this loyal yoke fellow to be objective in dealing with this as well. I think sometimes a conflict in the church is so important that we need to, it can't just be an individual affair because they're not going to deal with the issue, A lot of times we don't deal with the issue. So he calls someone to be impartial, someone to be objective, someone to be mature, to enter into this place. And instead of pointing fingers, to come and to plead with each of them as individuals to help them to live in the fullness, a life worthy of the gospel. And not judging them, not pointing fingers, but bringing them back to seeing the truth of the gospel. Saying, as we do this, this is how we need to begin to enter into conflict resolution. sometimes, you know, this is maybe overly simplistic, but he says, this is where we need to begin. Uh, we don't begin by saying, I'm waiting for them. I'm waiting for him to come apologize to me. He's the one who jacked me up, right? He's the one who's so dumb. He's really dumb. He needs to come and apologize to me. And uh, He doesn't say that. He says, we need to begin here with us as individuals. And then as we go forth, right, it's a matter of living out the gospel. It's a matter of saying, I've been forgiven much, and so I need to begin forgiving them that's the first thing we see the first ailment is conflict and that's the first medicine that he gives second thing that he's the second thing that we see in verses four through seven if you read this it looks like a series of disjointed commands but let me tell you uh, what he's talking about is is really a, a cure for worry medicine for worry so get get in the flow of this a little bit rejoice in the lord always i'll say it again rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all the lord is near do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's a bunch of different commands. Rejoice, be gentle, don't worry, pray. You know, all these different commands, and it seems like they're, they're, they're just kind of fragmented and just kind of piecemeal together as a way of giving some last-minute uh, uh, last advice as he closes this letter. But as you get into the context of it, what Paul is talking about, um, there's a common thread that kind of runs through these commands. When he talks about letting your gentleness be near to, uh, let your gentleness be evident to all, he's talking about gentleness where others would expect retaliation. It, it's, a, it's a context in which you have been wronged. I don't know, maybe you, you live in the project or something and someone sneaks into your apartment or something like that and they do something bad to, to you and, and you're really upset at them. You say, We're going to find you, we're going to get you. And instead of saying that, Okay, instead of saying that, he says, let your gentleness be evident to all. In that situation where you ought to retaliate, then we withhold that retaliation. He says, that's what gentleness means. That's interesting. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything. We know what anxiety is. We know what, well, maybe some of you, sixth graders know what. Anxiety is basically a worry that causes us to eat away at the insides of, of us. And, and the context is saying when we are in the midst of persecution. So there's a common thread here that we're persecuted, enemies around us. That's what the Philippians were dealing with. And in the midst of persecution, the tendency for them, obviously, is not to rejoice. It's to not to do these things. It's not to rejoice. It's not to be gentle. It's to worry, it's not to pray. You see, a lot of times we, a lot of times, whether it's persecution or something else, we are a people, we are a culture, we're a society that's prone to worry, aren't we? A bunch of worriers. Not warriors, a bunch of worriers. We worry about so many different things. There was a a guy who was... um, just a massive worry ward. Worried so much that he said, the only way I can, I can break this cycle of worry is if I joined the anti-worry club. So he joined the anti-worry club. There's no membership fees, no dues, nothing you have to pay. The only requirement for being in the anti-worry club is that you cannot worry. And so he joined this club, and the whole time he was so worried that he was going to worry that he ended up getting kicked out of the club. We worry about so many different things. Some of us worry about how we're going to make our rent payments this month, our mortgage payments this month. Some of us worry if we're going to have a job next month or next week even or next year. Some of us worry about getting uh, passing FCAT scores or SAT scores or what college am I going to do? We worry and we worry and we worry about all of these things. The word that Paul uses for the word worry is it's literally it, it chokes us. You ever been choked before? (laughs) Um, Yeah, some of you, yeah. Um, I would tell you to turn to your neighbor and start choking them, but that's what, he's saying that's what worry does. It chokes the life out of us. I used to hate hate wearing neckties when I was little, but I was like, ah, it's choking me. Like, that's what worry does. It it chokes the life of Christ, the life of joy out of us. Paul's saying, so what in the world do we do with worry? If this is such a, it's something that we do all the time. Says, let me give you a series of things that you can do. Says the problem with it here, when we worry here, fundamentally this is the issue here. When we worry, and you can you can uh, test your life, uh, test the word of God with this. Usually, when we worry, it's because we're losing sight of God. Because we lose sight of God, a lot. Yeah, maybe we. we, Oh no, I I know you're wrong, D.L. Because I've actually been praying about it. Here's what a lot of times we do. We've got an issue. We've got this problem, whatever it might be. Maybe it's, um, I don't have a date to, to prom. Okay, perhaps that's your issue. Or um, my company is going through layoffs, and, and uh, I don't know what it's going to look like. A lot of times, here's what we do is we, yeah, we, we, we may pray about it, but um, I forget who exactly said this, but they say we glance at God, and then we gaze at the problem. Don't we do this? He's saying, instead of doing that, we need to glance at the problem and then gaze at God and to fix our eyes on him. The problem with, the problem with, with worry is that we're, it, it, it comes because we're losing sight of God. And in verses 4 through 7, he's saying, here are several ways that we can get our hearts focused back on God. First thing he says, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. There's again that phrase, rejoice in the Lord. How in the world, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of all these things that we worry about, can we rejoice? He says, because we do so in the Lord. Because our joy doesn't come as a product of our circumstance, or because uh, the clothes that we're wearing is as hip and trendy as the next person, or because our car is running well, or because our cupboards are full of food and our bank account is, is, is uh, accruing interest at a rapidly increasing rate. It's not because of those things. He said, our joy comes in the Lord. What in the world does that mean? So there is an undercurrent of joy that comes when we fix our gaze upon the Lord Jesus, even in the face of hardship, even in the face of difficult times. It's not, by just, it's not just rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. So that means that if I'm going through hell and high water, I'm just going to throw a plastic smile on my face. He's not saying that. I remember watching Sesame Street um, a while back. I don't know why I was watching this. I didn't have any uh, children at the time, but I was watching Sesame Street. And there's a, a band called R.E.M. Do you guys remember R.E.M.? I think that's who it was. Did they write shiny, happy people? Okay, good. Um, shiny, happy people is a very uh, cool song. And um, the only line I know says, shiny, happy people holding hands. Right? And so I, I guess that's what it was. But in the Sesame Street, R.E.M. was on there. And they were kind of the guests. And they were singing with these, uh, with these Sesame Street animals. And um, the animals were really sad this day. And so they were singing this song. And they said, furry, sobby monsters feeling sad. It was weird. Like these Sesame Street characters were really sad and they were down in the dumps and they were rubbing their eyes. And the lead singer for REM said, oh, it doesn't have to be that way. Guys, what's wrong? Cheer up. And he says, here's all you have to do. Just jump up and down. So they started jumping up and down. And then all of a sudden, they started singing the song again. Instead of furry, sobby monsters feeling sad, they said, furry, happy monsters feeling glad. And they're like, oh, it really worked. All we need to do is jump up and down. That's not what Paul is saying. Right, you're getting persecuted. You're getting crushed by worry. Ah, just hold hands and jump up and down. Turn that frown right upside down. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying there's something so much deeper, because we fix our eyes often on the circumstances and on these things. It says, when we lift our eyes upwards, this is, this is the problem people of God is that we're so fixated, myself included. I realized that uh, this week was, uh, I was worrying and, and anxious about many things, and, and this passage was just kicking my butt saying, dude, you got, it's all right here. As you plan this message, you plan this meal for other people, start eating it for yourself, dude. A- a- and so I'm, I'm, I'm realizing, yeah, that's what we do. That's what I do. I glance at the problem. I'm sorry, I gaze at the problem, and then I glance at God, and then I gaze back at the problem. Saying our joy isn't found in the fact that in the midst of this hardship, we just start jumping up and down or, or saying, I'm going to smile and everything's going to be better. Yeah, maybe those things might help for a little bit, but a deep undercurrent of joy doesn't come from that, from that. It comes from lifting our gaze upwards and seeing. And as we do that, then the second thing that happens is we begin to realize that the Lord is near. We to realize that the Lord is near, and, and when we realize that he's near, as opposed to when we feel like God is far from us, we begin to treat other people with gentleness. And when you're worried and you're stressed out, we don't treat people the way that we would otherwise treat them, unless you treat them poorly to begin with. But if you're usually a nice person, you treat other people gently, you treat them with respect. When you're worried and you're anxious, you don't treat people with gentleness anymore. But when we realize that the Lord is near, we lift our gaze upwards again, and realize that his presence is with us. Because when we doubt, here's what we do. We, I'm sorry, when we worry, we're doubting one of three things about God. We're doubting his love. We're doubting his wisdom. We're doubting his power. We, we, we worry about the fact that, oh, I can't, um, I can't get a date. Let's take, I can't get a date. We doubt that God loves us, right? Or we doubt that he's powerful enough to give us a date perhaps. Or we doubt his wisdom that maybe he doesn't want you to have a date because he thinks that you're going to do something sketchy. I don't know what it is. But that's, when we worry, that's what we do. It, is, we, 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 it causes us to doubt who God is. It takes our eyes off of God and onto the situation. And Paul says the best way, the best way for us to really begin to see that the Lord is near is what it says in verse 7. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Present your requests to God. If this verse described the reality as is rather than the reality of what ought to be, then maybe it would read this. It would say, do not, uh, I'm sorry, be anxious about anything and everything, in everything, by worrying and fretting with anxiety in your heart. Ignore God. Maybe. Okay, that was kind of cheesy, but we do that sometimes, don't we? We forget about God. In the midst of all of these things, you remember the, the story about this little boy who was trying to build a, a, a snow fort, and he had this huge pile of snow that he was trying to move. This may not register with any of you who have never seen snow, but snow can be heavy when it's piled up. And so um, he was doing everything that he could. He created this like, catapult to, to move it and everything, and he went inside his house, and he was crying, and his dad's like, why are you crying? He's like, because my snow fort is incomplete, because it's, I, couldn't, I couldn't move it. He says, have you tried everything? He's like, yeah, I did everything. I tried to, I tried to push it. I tried to uh, restack it. I tried to create a, a catapult and nothing works. And he says, you haven't tried everything. He says, yes, I have. He says, but you didn't ask me to help you. And I think a lot of times, maybe that's what God says to us. And we try all of these things in our own way, but do we ask him to help us in our time of need? He says, not only to, to, to pray about these things, but with thanksgiving, to present our request to God. Well, that doesn't make any sense, does it? <laughs> How am I going to give thanks when there's nothing to give thanks for? And again, Paul is saying, as we enter into this place and just take him at his word and say, yeah, I, my life feels like it's, it's, it's falling apart. I'm worried and anxious about many things. I don't know what's going on in my life, but I'm going to pray and I'm going to give thanks. Saying it seems like we're pulling from a well that's dry. But he says, as you begin to offer up thanksgiving to God, you're going to realize that there is a well from which you can draw. You begin to realize that there's so many things that we can be thankful for, even in the midst of that situation. It's not like, okay, I'm praying about my, my dog who's sick, and I'm just going to say, thank you, God, for my family. Thank you for my job. Thank you for my finances. But he says, no, even as you pray in that situation, there's many things That the Lord God will bring to our hearts, that will bring thanksgiving, that will lead us to joy, that will lead us to take our minds off of, well, not take our minds off of, but give us a sense of peace and joy even in the midst of worrisome times. He says, when we do these things, check this out. Verse 7 And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Two things about the peace that he promises to us. One, he says it transcends all understanding. You ever experienced that kind of a peace before? Here's what he's saying basically what he's saying, this is a peace that will blow your mind. It's a kind of peace that will blow your mind. that transcends all understanding. You cannot describe it. You cannot explain it. Have you experienced that before? That kind of a peace in the midst of that kind of a hardship, an off-the-charts kind of a peace in the midst of the deepest depths of despair that you could experience that, he says, it will guard your heart, and your mind. Literally, the picture he's giving is that it, these people are like an armed sentry around the fortified city. And the peace of God will do that to your heart. will give you this kind of a peace. will give you that kind of a protection against the things that would attack your heart. Saying, let's do this kind of stuff. Let's not glance at God and then gaze at the problem, but to glance at the worries and then to, to gaze upon the Lord God second thing. And then the last thing. Uh, We saw uh, what Paul is telling us to do. Advice, prescriptions, uh, cure, medicine for uh, conflict and for worry. But what happens when we begin to relapse back into it? Yeah, it might be good for a week, but what happens when we begin to relapse back into that kind of a life? That's the last thing that we see. Uh, Medicine for relapse, verses eight and nine. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. Saying the last thing, how do we guard against relapse, against going back into worry, going back into conflict? He said we've got to ruthlessly guard our minds. We have to really guard what goes into and control what goes into our minds. He said, these are the things that we ought to filter. These are the things we ought to let uh, just rest in our minds, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, he says, think about these kinds of things. So let me ask you about the TV shows that you watch. Do they cause you to meditate, to dwell upon these kinds of things? Whatever is true and noble, right and pure and lovely and admirable, excellent and praiseworthy. And would we praise the things that we watch on TV? About the music that we listen to? Do those things feed into our minds, things that are pure and worthy? Right, last night, some of us were talking about uh, the shows that we watch, and uh, one of our sisters said that she loves watching um, the real housewives of whatever it is, county. That they live in, I I haven't watched the shows before, but uh, it looks kind of funny. Looks kind of interesting. I don't know, but some of the shows that we watch can be really damaging to our minds, and so we relapse back into worry. We relapse back into things that pollute our minds. Maybe it's it's what what are these things that are true and right and noble and pure? It's, It's it's maybe it's easier to define them by the negative. Here are the things that we ought to avoid: things that are untrue, things that are wrong things that are not noble, things that are not pure, that are not lovely, not admirable, not excellent, not praiseworthy. Avoid those kinds of things. But that's where a lot of times we feed our mind mental pollution, and that's what we eat, and garbage in and garbage out. It's the old programming. It's the simplest simplest principle of programming, garbage in, garbage out. The simplest principle of guarding our minds also. Do you hear hear about the garbage lady in Chicago? Actually, we have a a sister here from Chicago today. But there was a a lady, I I don't know what her real name is, but they called her the garbage lady from Chicago. Um, She lived in a smelly apartment. Um, I don't know if it was big or or small, but um, she was weird. Uh, She would, like, snoop around the trash cans for food. She would bum cigarettes off of other people. and and She would never let anybody inside her apartment because it stank to high heaven. It was absolutely wretched, awful, worse than Uh, worst bad breath or toenail fungus, whatever it is. It was awful. So uh, one day she died, and they went into her um, apartment. Then you hear stories like this all the time, but they found all kinds of stock certificates and all kinds of of, of money and things that that valued her net worth well over a million dollars. But they said that her apartment was a veritable pigsty of a place that she was living in, garbage all around her. And so she lived like that. And Paul is saying some of us live like that also. Just surrounded with garbage. A fantasizing on thoughts that we shouldn't fantasize about. Giving in to 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 these thoughts. You've got somebody that you don't like. And instead of, okay, whatever is true, right, noble, pure, lovely, all these things, I need to I need to forgive them. We begin to harbor resentment in our hearts and just play back in our mind over and over again the things that they've done to wrong us. We build up resentment. And resentment leads to anger, and anger leads to hatred. And Jesus said, hatred and murder are kissing cousins right here. Same thing, whatever whatever it is, anger, lust, pride, just indulging in these thoughts, indulging in these things. He says, "We, we live this kind of life. It's easy for us to regress back into a life because there's mental pollution in here. It's easy for us to indulge back and relapse back into a lifestyle away from which we've just come. And he's saying, this is what... This is what we need to do. We need to guard our minds ruthlessly, not only to think about these things. The, the word means to dwell upon these things, not only to dwell upon and make our habitation amongst these kinds of thoughts, but he says, whatever you've seen, have learned or received or heard from me, or seen and put it into practice, the God of peace will be with you. He says, take the things that you saw. Paul. It's interesting because everything that Paul has talked about in chapters one, two, three, and four are things that he's actually doing and actually living. And he's saying, not only take what I've, what I've said and, and do it, but, but remember my example and begin to live it out. Don't just learn about it. Don't just study it, but live it. Follow after the model that I have laid before you and live that out. Practice it because that's where you begin to find joy. That's where you begin to find, find peace. That's where you find medicine for all of these things that ail you. You begin to live it out. He says, I haven't just given you um, an instruction book on how to play basketball. Here, read it and then show up to the first game. No. He's saying, I've given you practice. Look, here's how you run a pick and roll. Here's how you shoot a free throw. Here's how you box out. He doesn't say learn about it, read about it in the book, but let me sh- I'm showing you so that you can practice it and then by practicing it, you can excel in it. And he says, the coolest thing about it is as you do this, not only will the peace of God, but in verse nine, it says, and the God of peace, the God of peace who gives you the peace of God is gonna be with you. I think he goes with you. Like never to leave you as we live out this kind of a life. See, we've seen from Paul's letter that all this kind of medicine, and the ultimate, when it comes down to it, conflict, worry, stinking in our thinking, all of these come boiled down to one thing. The truest issue, the deepest issue is sin. Sin is what causes conflict interpersonally. Sin is what causes us to worry all the time. Sin is what caused us to relapse back into into harmful habits in our lives. Saying the only thing that you need to do, the only thing that you need to do is understand that it is about sin. And then to begin to apply the gospel in that place. In every single one of these things, he said, it is only possible through Christ. So he says, rejoice in the Lord, pray, and let the peace of God, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, who took our sin upon himself. Isaiah 53, 6, saying that we all like sheep have gone astray, Each of us has turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He says, by his wounds, we find our healing. It's not about saying, in in the midst of my worry, I'm just going to try and and suck it up and fight through for another day. In the midst of my conflict with other people, I'm going to try and find some commonality apart from Christ. No, he's saying it's all predicated upon the gospel and relearning that and teaching yourself about that over and over and over again, that Jesus Christ, the one who never worried, who never anxious, never conflicted with anybody, but he took upon himself the punishment for all of our worry, all of our anxiety, all of our punishment, all of our uh, mental pollution. He took upon himself all of the punishment for that and he hung on the cross so that we might have the, not only the peace of God, but that we could have the God of peace go with us because he was abandoned. All of, all of our pain was given to him so that all of his gain could be given to us. I think this is what it, this is, what it is. When it all boils down to it, that's what it's all about about us exchanging all of these things with what he has for us. And as we do that, as we do that, he says, stand on the gospel. Stand on the truth of who you are. And it says in chapter 4, verse 1, that's how we stand firm. That's how we stand firm is by thinking upon him. So as we uh, prepare to come to the Lord's table, again, we're going to be invited to lift our gaze upwards to see Christ again. Whatever those concerns, whatever those worries, whatever the conflicts might be, to glance at those things and then to gaze in wonder and amazement at the glory of the gospel and at the beauty of Christ again. Let's pray. As we pray, uh, let's just ask the Lord God, maybe for some of us we've got uh, conflict in our relationships with others. We can just begin to pray about that, asking the Lord that he would rend, heal that rift Maybe others of us we've lived this week full of worry, full of anxiety, full of concern, and we have not turned to God for help. He says, "Would you cast your anxieties upon me because I care for you?" Maybe others of us we have been doing well, but then lately we begin to regress, begin to relapse, in large part because of the things that we feed our minds we saying let's turn our hearts and our minds, surrender our minds back to the Lord, that we might love the Lord our God with not only our heart, soul, strength, body, but with our minds as well. Let's come to the Lord and let's pray uh, in response to his word for a few moments, asking the Lord that he would help us in light of what we've heard uh, to begin to really uh, live out the things that he's called us to live out today. Let's pray for a few moments. And let's pray as we begin to reflect, continue to reflect on where we are as we prepare for some of us to come to the Lord's table, those who've been baptized or confirmed, 16 and older, as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. It's never a blind letting go of things that we hold on to that are wrong or sinful or even good things that we've made better than they ought to be but we always do our calculations at the foot of the cross in light of what Christ has done, in light of the beauty of our Savior, in light of the worth of our God. In view of him, in view of his mercy, that's when we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. That's when we surrender our sin. And until Jesus becomes sweet, uh, sin will not become bitter and vice versa. Let's ask the Lord as we come reflecting on the cross, and on the beauty of the one who died upon it. Let's begin to prepare our hearts. And ask the Lord if there are things that we need to confess to him, any ways in which we would come to this table at this point in an unworthy manner, that he would cleanse us, that he would uh, wash us clean, that so we can come uh, with clear conscience and an obedient spirit to the Lord's table of grace. So let's continue to pray and prepare our hearts in, in coming to the Lord's table. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word. Thank you for life that's been given to us. And pray for those of us in here who may be struggling with conflict or with worry, just going back to the things that we've once turned away from. Ask, Lord God, that in your grace and in your kindness, you would bring us back to you, that you'd renew us at this table you would help us to find joy in your presence. Help us to surrender all of our broken pieces to the one who is broken for us. We thank you. We love you. Would you draw us near to you through this time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.